0: this podcast is proudly produced and presented by the zoomer podcast network home of great podcasts like Marilyn lightstone reads idea city on the air and the garden show you're listening to an exclusive
1: podcast of the naz and wally sports hour heard sunday mornings at nine on zoomer radio the new am 740
0: the world doesn't need another sports show it needs an awesome sports show You're listening to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Good morning, Naz. Good morning, Wally. The boys are back. Let's talk sports. Good morning and welcome to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour. We are live from Liberty Village in downtown Toronto. I'm your host, Walter Rigobon. As usual, with me in studio, my co-host, Naz Marchese. Good morning, Naz. How are you? Good, Wally. How are you? Good. Uh, Just to let our listeners know uh, what we're up to today, we're really pleased to welcome in studio uh, David Carver. David Carver is one of Canada's most prominent concert promoters, but uh, we didn't get him in this morning to talk about Bob Dylan or Aerosmith or Tom Petty. We got David in this morning to talk about a great new project uh, I wouldn't even call it a new project. It's a project that David's been working on. It's the story about Mo Norman that's going to uh, uh, project that David's working on. It's a movie to be called The Place I Belong, the Mo Norman story. Mo Norman is a legendary golf figure around the world, passed away about 15 years ago Um. I've uh, always had a passion for golf, and I'm thrilled to uh, talk about this story with David Carver. David, good morning. How are you, sir?
2: Well, I have to say, it's my <laughs> first uh, sports radio uh, interview, and I've, I'm starting at the top, the number one uh, <laughs> the number one sports show in the country. Where do we go from here?
0: I don't know. Uh, Thank you for having me. Oh, well, we're, we're thrilled to have you, uh, David. We, ch- we chatted briefly off the air, um, and we're going to have a great chat on the show today as well about Moon. Norman, who's uh, golf's always been a passion in my life. And uh, Mo Norman is um, the greatest ball striker of all time. He's also a fascinating, fascinating character. You've got a great story you're going to tell. And uh, we've got most of the hour to do that. We're also going to be talking to Michael Trakos, uh, post-media national hockey writer for Post Media Network, Of course, the story this week was the Leafs. Uh, Before we get over to Mo Norman, uh, David, we always get an opportunity to to bring our listeners up to date on the Toronto Maple Leafs and uh, big game last night. Naz. uh, They're
1: not firing the coach. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs)
0: Nobody's trying to
1: fire the coach already. Uh,
0: They needed that one. They looked brutal against Tampa on Thursday night. Uh, Pretty good game against St. Louis, Stanley Cup champions. Earlier in the week, um, man, Toronto fans go up and down like yo-yos. It's really incredible, uh, and it's we're talking October.
1: And Anderson's no good. The coach is no good. And
0: nobody's no good. I mean, uh, they win but a
1: game and they're going to the cup.
0: The one thing I will say, it's you know, it's a long season. We talk about that all the time. I kind of like the way the bottom six on the Leafs is playing. There's some really positive signs there. There is.
1: Yeah, there is definitely.
0: This new Russian kid they brought in, I I, I can't even pronounce the names, I I haven't got that far yet, Mikhalyev, 65, number 65, I think they found a little diamond in the rough there, didn't they?
1: Yeah, he overtook that uh, Red Wing defense one, he's not even there, very good skater, good player.
0: Anyways, uh, we'll get a chance to talk to Michael Trakos about uh, the NHL uh, in the middle of the hour, but we have in studio today, David Carver. David, you're from Newfoundland.
2: I'm a born and bred. Absolutely
0: <laughs> proud of it. And as I explained to you earlier, uh, today's Newfoundland Day for, for me. I've got some guests coming in from Newfoundland that will be entertaining. So, uh, they're coming for turkey dinner tonight. They're coming for turkey dinner tonight, so I'm thrilled, I'm yeah. thrilled about that. I haven't made my way to The Rock yet, oh. but uh, I have a feeling that that's in my near future. So I'm looking forward to uh, to a, new, uh, a frequent guest on our show is uh, has been Bob Cole. Oh, Legend
2: uh, in Newfoundland, well,
0: le- legend in Canada, legend everywhere. So uh, we're we're thrilled to have you. Uh, before we get into the Mo Norman story, are you a Leafs fan?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs>
2: Sorry to put you on the spot. Uh, well. Uh- Truth be told, uh, <laughs> uh, Boston Bruins fan.
0: Oh, uh, numbers, I hear numbers. that. I hear the Boston Bruins are big in Newfoundland because of the Eastern Seaboard I, I, connection. I yeah,
2: for me, it was watching uh, watching Bobby Orr play, um, and uh, I, I just there's interesting connections I've I've had throughout my life, and and watching Bobby play and and the way he was described, his class, his finesse. His style—he was a, you know, a classy, a classy man. Um, so, for whatever reason, um, I gravitated towards him, and then I realized later in my life that he had the same qualities that my own father had. And throughout my entire life, I've always been, always gravitated to people who exemplify the same. Uh, personality and character and class of my father and it started with Bobby Orr, I think. You know, when you're when you're a kid and you're finding who, you know you're um finding out who your who your idols are. You think they're sports heroes or they're movie stars. But in the end of the day, ideally they it always comes back to your heroes, your um your idols, your mentors, or always your parents, or they sh- you know, hopefully they are.
1: David, your father played for someone.
2: Uh he he played uh, hockey throughout all of Atlantic Canada and he, he, he got called up to um to uh, the New York Rangers training camp and the deal that he struck with them back in those days, uh when there's six teams in the league, um he was making more money playing hockey in Atlanta, Canada than than the um, NHL players were. So he got called up to the uh, Rangers training camp, and the deal was that he was going to to play for the Rangers. And um, what ended up happening was they did some kind of trade and got somebody to fill the spot that my father was going to play. Uh, I think it was a, a right wing. So they told my father when he got there that, they were going to send him down to the um, to the um, the farm team. And Dad just said, nope, send me back to Canada. He said, the deal you struck with me was I was coming up to play right wing for the Rangers. And if that's not the deal, send me back to Canada. Now, this is back when every kid would dream of playing in the NHL. And for my father, it was about principle. It was about a deal that was made. And the deal was broken. And he went back to Atlanta. And people couldn't believe it. Like, kids would... Killed to play in the NHL. <laughs> and for him, it was about uh, a deal that
0: was made. And, Different world back then. Oh, and he lived his whole <laughs> life that way. A handshake was a handshake. Uh, we're talking to, uh, to David Carver. David, you've been one of Canada's most prominent rock concert, music concert promoters. Thank you. Uh, some of your, uh, on your resume, done uh, Bob Dylan, Aerosmith, Tom Petty, I'm sure numerous others. How does uh, someone go bridge from promoting music concerts to developing a project, a film, producing a film about the life of Mo Norman? How did that come about?
2: Well, um funny story, the way I got started in the music business is um while I was in university, my uh the summer I was at uh, in university, I decided to have a, a party in the backyard of my parents' house. And my parents would spend their summers in PEI. So I started telling people in May about a party I was having on July 5th, Saturday, July 5th. Um, a beach, a Hawaiian party in my backyard. So my father ends up coming home from uh, PEI on, on the, uh, the morning of the 5th. So I now have to tell him that I'm having this party in the backyard. And um, around 8 o'clock or 8.30, there's two of us in the backyard. And my father comes downstairs and says, you know, you're quite the party promoter. <laughs> quite, a, quite an event you have going on here. Is, is everybody having a good time? Being a bit sarcastic. And he went off to get a bucket of chicken, went down to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Came back about 40 minutes later, and there had to be 200 people in the backyard. And when my father came up to me, I said, look, Dad, I think, you know, it's only like eight thirty, nine 9 o'clock. I think there's going to be a lot more people here. And he said, well, I know of at least two more. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I was at Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) The girl serving me was talking to the girl through the window in the kitchen, and they were talking about some beach party on Thorburn Road, but they didn't know how to get there, so I gave them directions. (laughs) This is my father giving two strangers directions on how to get to his house for this party. So, around 3 o'clock in the morning, I shut it down, but there had to be 500 people in the backyard. And my father helped me clean up all the, all the uh, empties. And then he said, um, he just looked at me, he said, David, no more. And then he stopped and he looked at me, he said, and if you're going to do it again, have it at someone else's house. <laughs> <laughs> and then he stopped and he, without turning around, he just, he had his back to me and he said, better yet, why don't you rent out a place? and charge people money to get in. And about a month later, I had the sequel, charge 10 bucks to get in, rented out a, a, a curling rink in the summertime, and sold 800 tickets at 10 bucks a ticket. And that's how I got started in the music business. And I promoted shows throughout all of Atlanta, Canada, and the one challenge was, how do you get artists, musicians, and their agents in L.A.? How do you get them interested in coming all the way to Newfoundland? And through sheer persistence, um, annoying persistence, I would expect. Um, You know, for 30 years, I, I managed to bring some of the biggest names to Atlantic Canada. And it's with that same persistence that um, I ended up getting into the film business. And I'm I'm only working on one thing, and that's the Mo Norman story. And that's just the way I'm wired. Um, I think a lot of producers have eight or ten different projects at one time, and I just I I have to tell this story. I have to get this made. Why Mo Norman? Um, Why? I I think um, it's on, for several. Um, there's several reasons. I think there's a, um, a psychological reason. Um, I think I am, I think I, I, I feel like I share some of Mo's journey. I think I've had some of the same experiences that Mo has had. Um, you know, certainly been kicked down and had to get back up and been kicked down again and had to get back up. Um, So there's just, I, I, my life, I feel uh, I I resonate with his life Um, from an entrepreneurial perspective. I think the challenge, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and, um, you know, for 30 years in the music business in Atlanta, Canada, I've made the impossible possible. Um, And it seems like people are having a tough time getting this movie made. And it's, it's a great movie and it's, you know, the story itself is incredible. And I think it's a great movie. And I want to get it made, and people have tried and have not been successful. And I think entrepreneurially, that's I'm attracted to it for that reason—that I can perhaps do something that nobody else can, they, or others have
0: failed. We, we had a we had a chat off the air, and I know that this movie's um, personal to you, in uh, because it involves, and you know, if you don't want to talk about this on the air. Uh, or if we're a bit premature on this, but uh, I know we had the chat about uh, how this bridged the relationship between you and your dad and the story about, um, I don't remember if it was a $10 bill or a $20 oh, yeah. bill. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but I'll leave it to you uh, in a way that you can't talk
2: about. Yeah. Um, when um, my father was... Uh, uh, passing away with cancer. Um, um, I was up in his room with him just chatting on his bed and um, he he knew that I was pursuing the Mo Norman story. Um, I'd been trying since 1998 and, and, and I had to take, take a step back from it for reasons. Um, someone else had the rights to the movie and every two years since 1998 I would contact um Mo Norman's estate and try to get the rights and um someone else just kept holding on to the rights. Um so just before my dad died we were up uh I was up chatting with him and and um uh my dad was a great entrepreneur and and my dad one of his greatest skills was recognizing opportunity. Um so while we were chatting, he he um, asked me to give him his wallet. And he, he pulled out a, a card out of his wallet and said, hang on to this. And it was a a, a special card. Um, and I said, okay, great. And then I, I saw there was $10 in the wallet. I and said, I said, Dad, there's, there's $10 here. What do you want me to do with that? And he said, hang on to that too. And I said, okay, well, what am I going to do with that? And he said, um, when the movie comes out, uh, buy me a, a seat next to yours at the at the movie, uh, and I said I'll I'll do that, and I th- um, I don't know if he was hoping or if he knew it, but uh, uh, I think he believed that I could get this done, and he knew how important it was to me to to make this movie, so. That's the story. Thank you for
0: sharing that with us. Of course. Uh, one last uh area and then we're going to go to go to break uh Dave and then we'll come back and chat a little bit more obviously about uh, this
2: golfs uh are you a golfer? Uh um I would my brother would say no. <laughs> okay. So I'll go I'll go with yeah.
0: no. I, I don't know it's if you have gotten into uh into the whole golf golf has this aura about it uh it, it's got it's got a philosophical bent it's got a mysticism to it that perhaps a lot of other sports don't have um you know we, there's 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 noted uh characters fictional characters in 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 a novel golf in the kingdom Michael Murphy Shivus irons the legend of bagger Vance there's this whole mysticism about this sport like and people are always Chasing this uh, this idea, this uh, this this cloud that exists in golfers' minds, uh, and I, I want to know to what extent in the film, because you've you've made you've said quite often this isn't a golf movie. It's more than a golf movie. It transcends sports, mm-hmm. um, and in the sense that it transcends sports, uh, tell us where you intend to go in the movie uh where it's not just about golf. Uh, that's a great question. Um
2: his uh, my first uh, um, awareness of Moe was as a golfer and and my brother and father were talking about um you know the various books and and magazine stories about him and they were mostly talking about the golf prowess and in of itself Moe's golf prowess is a movie. Like you could make a movie about him just you can make a two-hour movie about him on the golf course. Um, uh, the things that he achieved on the golf course are are unbelievable, um, and incredibly true. So that's how I first became aware of him. But then, as I once I acquired the rights to the movie and started researching, you know, you talk to all his friends who were golfers. You talk to all the golf, you know, the golfers around. But then I had an opportunity to interview uh, most family and i and I think some of the public that know Mo well know that there was a disconnection with the family, and they're not quite sure or they may not know why that was. I was able to get in deep into that with the family and discover there's a there's a there's a, a family a connection and well disconnection, and then um happily reconnection with the family. And family disconnection and reconnection, we can all relate to that. It all resonates with all of us. So there's a part of, there's a significant part of that in the film. Um, you know, the film is about triumph over adversity. Um, it's about friendship and road trips, um, loyalty, um, bullies versus the bullied, um, the need for understanding and acceptance of people the way they are. Um, it's it obviously has the rocky-ish kind of, uh, rocky kind of, uh, theme to it, you know, getting knocked down, getting back up, getting kicked out of amateur golf, getting bullied out of professional golf. Um, so it has all of those elements. And in any movie, most movies have one or two through lines, one or two themes. And this one has seven, you know, there's seven different, there's seven different Angles, you know, all happening at the same time in our script. Um, so it's just it's it 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 does transcend sports. It it's about you know the need for um, redemption and and reconciliation, and um, it has all the elements of a. It has more than enough elements of a great
0: story, off the golf course as well as on. We're talking. We're talking to David Carver. The movie is. The Place I Belong, The Mo Norman Story. David is uh, producing it with some other uh, notable producers. It's time to go to our first break. We'll be right back and we'll continue to discuss The Mo Norman Story. Are they ever wrong about sports? I can answer that in two words Impossible! The Naz and Wally Sports Hour on Zuma Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Naz Wally Sports Hour. We are live from Liberty Village in downtown Toronto on the new AM 740, downtown Toronto, 96.7 FM. Live video streaming, www.zoomerradio.ca. We're pleased to uh, uh, have him join us in studio today. David Carver. David is uh, producing a new movie called The Place I Belong, The Mo Norman Story, in quotation marks, sports unknown legend. Uh, unknown. I don't know if he's unknown amongst golf purists. He's very well known. Uh, I've known about Mo Norman basically my entire life. Ran into him a couple of times. He used to... Uh he used to hang up at uh, Pleasure Park, uh, up at Highway 7 and uh, 400. I used to hit some balls up there in the late 80s. I'd i uh, I'd run into him in the parking lot a few times. I think he was probably driving his Cadillac and had all kinds of Always. stuff in his trunk. Always. And, uh, and uh, never got a chance to chat with him. I never bothered him. Uh, just I sort of acknowledged him and walked by him. And ran into him a few times at some uh, golf uh, events uh, that I was present at with, uh, with thousands of other people amazing part about mo norman he may have been unknown amongst the uh, general public the non-golf purists in the golf industry he was a legend and some of the uh, there's one scene i remember uh, i have it in my mind i remember it like it was yesterday it was the 1995 at the national golf club of canada it was the skins game Uh, faldo was there couples was there Crenshaw was there. I think Nick Price might have been there. I don't yeah. recall for sure. I know the backstory to that. Uh, and you know, I think Couples uh, was on the driving range, and he was bantering with Faldo. And all of a sudden, the word got out that Mo Norman was going to the driving range, and he was going to hit balls. And I and I remember, I think it was the caddy went at the Fred Couples and say, "We got to head over to watch Mo Norman." And <laughs> I still remember Fred Couples' eyes popping out. And he said he dropped his club right away. And, you know, these were the top professionals in the world at the time. Faldo was number one. Couples was boom, boom. You know, Crenshaw was Little Ben, Masters winner. And they just dropped everything and they headed over to the range and they just stood and watched Mo Norman hit golf balls. And and I, I was watching Couples and Faldo, I think, more than I was watching Mo Norman. Uh, they were just transfixed. And there's stories about, um, there's stories about other times where Gary Player and Paul Eisinger and Tom Watson, uh, Trevino, Trevino was a huge Mo Norman fan. And, and I just carry that picture that Mo Norman was revered amongst professional golfers and, and, his legend I sense is is increasing. Uh, you know, everybody's always searched for the holy grail in golf. With Ben Hogan, they used to call it the secret. But Mo Norman, he he, he, he was the greatest ball striker in history. And I'll ask you, David, you know, you're, you're just, you're, there's a smile because you, you, you says, I'm, I'm telling a story that you're familiar yeah. with. And Trevino, you know, you've, uh, you've bantered with Trevino about Mo Norman.
2: Well, I, I, I've, uh, I haven't yet, but yeah. uh, certainly Trevino, uh, Lee Trevino has a lot of, you know, admiration for Mo and a lot of public comments. And going back to the unknown legend, I kind of uh, came up with—I didn't come up with it—but I put it together because it does describe Mo on on many levels. And you are right; um, he, he's unknown, arguably unknown, uh, uh, relatively unknown out, out of the golf industry, um, but a legend within. So I like the—I like the oxymoron of that. Um, the story about the, the, the Knicks and uh, the, the, the the two Knicks—that whole—I know the backstory in that is. Um, one of the two Nicks had a new um, a new iron that he was hitting, and he was he was hitting the ball all over the place. Couldn't get it straight down the fairway. And I guess he he was known to have a bit of a you know a bit of a temper. And he was he was on the driving range and he was like swearing and saying, "I can't believe this club. It's I can't believe my sponsor wants me to you know use this. It's a piece of crap." Blah blah blah. I mean, he was just railing on this club, saying it just can't hit the ball straight. I can't control the ball. and He was. And and Mo walked up and and Nick, whichever Nick it was, was just you know frustrated. So Mo took the club from him and hit ten balls straight <laughs> down the middle. And then Mo looks at him and says, "You're right, it's broke." <laughs> and that's how that.
0: That whole story whole came story about,
2: started. and then so most started hitting balls, and then all the other guys showed up, and you're right they they were just they were just beside themselves; they couldn't believe the talent of Mo Norman.
1: Dave, as good as he was, why didn't he succeed? Uh,
2: well, I guess. Um, well, I know that when he when he was uh, he was he was thrown out of the amateur uh, ranks; they they kicked him out of amateur golf. Um, uh, um, because you know, amateur golf back in the day they uh, Canadian Amateur Golf Association they were they were embarrassed by him so they they kicked him out of amateur golf and he turned pro and he was doing pretty well on the pro circuit um, headed off to LA for his first tournament and i guess he was 9 or 10 tournaments into the into the uh the PGA and he he managed to come fourth and win like 1200 bucks but after that tournament um some some well-respected golfers uh, cornered him in the locker room and kind of really dressed him down and, you know, told him to get out of professional golf and to go back to Canada where he belonged. And just because of Mo's social awkwardness and and his appearance and the way he dressed and the way he acted, you know, some of the pros just
0: just didn't think he belonged in on the pro circuit. Well, that, that's the whole that that was that's the whole issue about class and golf. And it's always been one of the criticisms of golf is that it's an old. I choose my words carefully nowadays. Uh, it's an old guys' country club. Um, it was, um, you know, and it was, it was it was it was it was a sport for the privileged for the longest period of time, and Mo didn't fit within the corners of that of that social strata.
2: Well, he, he didn't in, in all respects. He His family weren't, you know, they were not a wealthy family. He didn't come from a wealthy background. Um, and just the way he dressed and acted certainly wasn't the, you know, uh, um, in keeping with the image of professional golf back in the day. Um, and so he got bullied out and... and and it was a shame because he had come forth in that tournament and and I think he was on he would have become the the next phenomenon in golf. Um he would have won them all the tournaments. Um and I there's people that would argue that the reason they bullied him out wasn't as much his social awkwardness was that they knew that this guy had something that they didn't and he was going to be he was going to be unbeatable. And there's people that would argue that that's why they bullied him out is because they were afraid of him. Um, You know, but he managed to he managed to continue playing in the sort of like the the minor leagues, like the Babe, you know, like Babe Ruth playing in the minor leagues. Uh, He there was lots of, you know, pro tournaments where you could win a couple hundred dollars here, five hundred dollars there throughout all of North America. So he would play in those tournaments and he was setting course records, um, you know, shots. Fifty nine, three or four times. So he succeeded on one level, but he obviously didn't succeed in on the on the main PGA tour.
0: Well, that was, uh, yeah. I mean, it was. You know, people look back at Mo Norman's career. Um, you know, being the best ball striker in the history of a sports. You know, that's pretty successful. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would argue. Uh, uh, you yeah. know, he, he didn't win on the PGA Tour. Uh, won an innumerable <laughs> amount of tournaments in Canada, as you mm. say. Um, and in the U.S. And in the U.S. Um, so, you know, some, I guess if you look at it, if the measuring stick, if that was the measuring stick, I mean, I guess the issue was how bad did he really want it?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, and that's a great that's a uh, great th- thread. It's it's how do you measure success? Um, y- you know, at the end during most of his playing career, Mo was making you know very little money. So if you measure success by money, then he wasn't successful. Um, he broke a lot of course records. So if you measure success by what you do within that profession, uh, then he was successful. If you measure it by by the end of his life, he was inducted in the golf hall of fame. He was. He was um, given $5,000 a month at the end of his career, <laughs> which uh, Titleist owns that now. No other sports entity could ever give a athlete money at the end of their career because Titleist did it. And nobody ever gives money to an, uh, an athlete at the end. It's always at the beginning of their career. So, you know, that. If you you could call that being successful
0: and inducted in the Hall of Fame, success. We're talking to David Carver. David is working on a project. Uh, producer, The Place I Belong, the Mo Norman story. Uh, we've got to go to break. Uh, we'll be right back after the break with Michael Tracos, who is a National Hockey Writer for Post Media. And just before I go to break... Uh, Interesting, we talk about uh, Mo Norman and his success, and we'll talk about this after we finish the Michael Trakos interview. I'll leave this one with you, David. Uh, there are many who consider, certainly around the world, Mo Norman, uh, the most famous Canadian golfer of all time. That's another way of measuring success. Because I, I there's all kinds about. of stories where you talk about golf in Ireland or Australia, and you say you're from Canada, and they always ask about Moon Norman, don't they? Yep,
2: absolutely. Anyways,
0: we'll, we'll continue that thread, uh, uh, and we'll be right back with Michael Trakos. They never argue sports. They just explain while they're always correct. The boys are back. The Naz and Wally Sports Hour on Zuma Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Nas and Wally Sports Hour. We are live from Liberty Village in downtown Toronto. We're pleased to welcome back to the Nas and Wally Sports Hour, Michael Tracos, National Hockey Writer for the Post Media Network and author. The next one's How McDavid Matthews and a Group of Young Guns Took Over the NHL. Good morning, Michael. How are you this morning? Hey, pretty good. How you doing today? Uh, we're doing good because the Leafs won last night, Michael. So um, we uh, we we got a little bit concerned Thursday night. You know the way how you know the way Toronto Maple Leafs fans are. We uh, we're up and down like a yo-yo, and uh, we're all everything was doom and gloom. But uh, last night uh, we got a pretty good result. And what was striking about the game is uh, the bottom six on this Leafs team looks uh, looks looks pretty good. Michael, your uh, your uh, your assessment.
1: Yeah, they're getting a lot of bang for their buck on that bottom six. By my count, uh, Alex Kerfoot is the only guy earning a million dollars or more, which is, uh, you know, the sign of the times of today's NHL. You need to find those kind of bargain bin type salaries, and the Leafs have them in spades, whether it's uh, uh, McKayev or Moore um, or Gauthier. Um, all of them have been filling in. I thought it was a really strong game, obviously, by, like you mentioned, the third and the fourth line. And KF continues to produce. I think if he continues to produce this way, uh, it won't be long before he finds himself either playing with Matthews and Nylander or possibly, uh, Tavares and Marner. At the same time, you probably don't want to break up that third line. So, um, you know, the good news, the bad news is the Leafs aren't getting nearly enough production as they probably want from their, uh, top two lines, but, you, know, you can't complain when the bottom two are producing this way. Michael, does Jason Spezza last the season in <laughs> Toronto? This is his last season in Toronto? Yeah, does he last the season oh, lasts in Toronto? A season. Well, how about does he last a month? I was <laughs>
0: about to say that. I'm not sure he's going to get through this month.
1: Let's let, let forget about the season. <laughs> um, let's, let's see if he survives till U.S. Thanksgiving. No, honestly, uh, and I, I'm not just joking about that. Um, I don't think a rotation based. Um, playing schedule was what he had in mind when he uh, signed with Toronto and people think that the only reason he signed with Toronto is because no one was offering him contracts and he couldn't get more than a million dollars anywhere else No, he, he signed here because he wanted to be here he wanted to win a cup in Toronto and the money didn't matter to him um, that's not to say that he couldn't have got more money or at least uh, he didn't have other options around the NHL and I think you know, you look around the league and uh, Pittsburgh is ailing for forwards um, there's a lot of teams that could use uh, a little boost of offense even on the power play, and that's what Jason Spezza can do. Uh, this guy is better than what Mike Babcock, I think, is portraying him out to be. So um, I'm kind of leaning in the direction of you know, Jason Spezza. Uh, he's not long for this uh, city, and uh, whether it's Pittsburgh or another market, I uh, wouldn't be surprised if he's gone within, uh, like I said, the next couple months.
0: Uh, we're talking to Michael Tracos. Michael this week in your uh, in in one of your columns uh, which was universally uh, uh I, I would say acclaimed you got a lot of tweet responses saying you got more hockey in, in such a in, in such a short column than anybody's ever seen and of course uh just want to remind our listeners Michael Tracos, you can find him in the post media if you want to read about hockey he's the guy it's his column is tracheotomy which I actually I love the name of that michael <laughs> tracheotomy how perfect. A lot of
1: for that, I did not come up with a name
0: <laughs> it's okay I keep I've been making the point on this show for years. The problem with sports nowadays, nobody's got nicknames anymore, so now we're gonna turn the nicknames over to the columnists, uh, even yeah, better you know,
1: I, I, as long as people are having fun with it, I, I got one person saying, how dare you make fun of uh, a serious medical condition, but I'm like, you know what, let's have a little fun. let's so, have some fun. for that, you know, we get enough kind of doom and gloom when you talk about politics and other world affairs so. You know, sports Uh, and entertainment. That's what it is, buddy.
0: I, I couldn't agree with you more. There's no fun being made of anything. Uh, we're just, uh, it's, it's a play on your name. And, uh, if people can't, (laughs) obviously people can't get that, then I think that's their problem. That's my point anyways. Anyways, Michael, in that column. Uh, you started off by talking about the 2022 Olympics. Uh, uh-huh. both, uh, both, uh, they've extended the collective bargaining agreement. Uh, the issue is whether the NHL is going to uh, Beijing. Uh, that hasn't been settled yet. Doesn't look like the preliminary indications are, uh, the IOC and the NHL are going to have the, uh, are going to have a mutual standoff again. Uh, and that's a shame for hockey. Uh, because there, and, and you make the point, we're, we're at the point in hockey right now where there's a changing of the guard. Uh, from 2010, uh, on, you had the Crosbys and the Taves and the Petrangelos and the Shea Webbers and Doughty and, uh, some of those guys are past their prime. Um, and now we've got the new guard, McDavid, McKinnon, Marner, Riley, Shifley, Braden Point. On the U.S. side, we've got Matthews, Eichel, the Hughes brothers. Um, man, hockey fans want to see. I mean, these are, this is the guts of the under 23 team that looks so great. Uh, they're yeah. now taking over the hockey world, and you make that point in your book, The Next Ones. Um, It's time. We've got to see, we've got to see McDavid and McKinnon wearing a Canada sweater. Uh, When's this going to happen?
1: As far as the Olympics, I'd be shocked if we see uh, NHLers um, in Beijing. Like, first off, the NHL doesn't want to go there. Um, They haven't wanted to go to the Olympics for a while now. Uh, They don't make any money. They have no control. It's in the middle of the season. There's so many reasons why they don't want to go there. Above all that, in Beijing, and have you guys been paying attention to what's going on with the NBA in China right now? <laughs> uh, if you are, um, that is a battleground. Are. It's it's a no win scenario for the for the NHL. Um, so, and, and I think the players are starting to realize it as well. The fact that you know they didn't reopen the CBA and they let it um, run its course for another few years told me that you know they're, they're sort of happy with the current arrangement. Obviously, there's you're not 100 percent happy but there's too much good there to really risk it and let's face it not that the nhl is not making money the nhlpa is not making money by going to the olympics where they are making money is the world cup of hockey and you know more and more i get the sentiment that a lot of players are willing to uh, have a world cup um and rather than an Olympics, so as long as the world cup is a legitimate World Cup. And, you know, I don't think you're ever going to get what soccer has with their World Cup where you ever hear any soccer players talk about the Olympics and how they'd rather do that than a World Cup. No, because it's a legitimate tournament that World Cup is. And I don't know if hockey's ever going to get there, but I I think the the main issue is they're going to kill the uh, so-called gimmick teams, those uh, Team North America and Team Europe, which, you know, that was the reason why that last World Cup was successful in my mind is that we had that young gun team, but um, if we go through a strict, you know, best on best, pick your best eight countries, and, you know, I'm sorry if you're, if you're a Slovenian descent, like an Anansi Kopitar, I'm sorry you just might not play in this year's World Cup, or the next World Cup, but um, you know, I, I think what you want is a best-on-best best tournament, whether it's Olympic, whether it's World Cup, and I honestly, I'm, I might be in the majority or minority, but I like the idea of a World Cup versus the Olympics, because you're limiting it to possibly eight countries and the best eight. You're not having to play a France or an Italy or um, even a team China. You're just getting the superpowers and you're getting the best of the best. So, um, you know, it, it's done properly. And if we do see a Canada versus U.S. final, I don't think anyone will be complaining at the end of that tournament. So we'll see if it happens. Uh, right now, talking to the PA and talking to, Uh, Various people within the NHL looks like 2021 is being uh, earmarked um, as a potential date. Um, They have to figure out the month. It looks like it's probably still going to be right before training camp opens, which is a great lead into the season. Um, And like I said, if they, uh, uh, if they can kind of figure out um, a way to kind of get everyone excited about it and, you know, put this whole idea that it's, it's not the Olympics and it's not, it's not your truest international competition. Uh, if they can put that to rest and just get a really good tournament, I think you know th- this could be the start of something really good. Michael, your thoughts on the Edmonton Oilers six and zero start? I think it's for real. I really do. Uh, I think this is a different Oilers team than we saw last year, and I think it begins behind the bench with Dave Tippett. He's got them playing structured hockey, but more importantly, this is a team that's more than just a one line powerhouse now so you know it's not just mcdavid and Drysdale. it's obviously going to be about them every night because they're the most talented players but when you got james neal scoring we got nugent hopkins scoring when you got zach Cassian producing points um this is a deadly oilers team and the only question is is mike smith and koskinen uh, a good enough tandem to get them into the playoffs and you know if you're scoring this many goals Maybe they don't have to be um, a worthy uh, Maybe they can do sort of what Calgary did last year with Riddick and Smith, and if that's the case, then yeah, I like Edmonton's chances, but Again, James Neal is turning out to be the best acquisition
0: mm-hmm. in the summer. Anyways, we've been talking to Michael Tragos. Uh, Michael, we want to thank you again for joining us this morning. Uh, we really appreciate your time, and we always look forward to uh, always look forward to your columns in the Post Media, in the Toronto Sun, National Post, and all those papers across the country. Thanks for uh, thanks for keeping us posted.
1: All right, thanks very much, guys,
0: for having me on. Thanks, Michael. Michael Trichos, Uh in studio this morning. David Carver, producer. The Place I Belong, the Mo Norman story. And just before we went to break and talked a little bit about a hockey uh, uh, question, we pondered and we briefly asked you. We said, we're going to first question back. We're going to ask David Carver. How does someone with no experience in the film business take on the Mo Norman story as a film? Tell us how, uh, how that came about.
2: Well, I guess... <clears throat> I guess maybe the question you're asking is why does someone like you, with no experience, <laughs> think you can do this? I was um, a little bit it, more diplomatic yeah, well, than yeah, that, yeah, David. But you know what? You were, you'd be right. So.
0: <laughs> okay, so tell us. Um,
2: I guess you know, thirty years in the music business in Atlanta Canada, I've you know it's it was one big wall, and I ran right at it. You know, and uh, that's that's how I'm wired. That's how I'm built. Is to to take on the big challenge and, and see if I can make it happen. And, you know, Muhammad Ali has that saying, if you can do it, do it, it ain't bragging. And, um, you know, my going back to my father, he one of his greatest attributes and assets was his ability to recognize an opportunity. So for me, once we had the script written... It was, how do I get the attention of the Hollywood industry? And there's a story about Mo Norman, and, and I don't want to have any spoiler alerts for the film, but there's a story that we've, it's actually the opening scene in the movie. And it is an unbelievable true story. And when I was first told it, I thought, that, that just never happened. That's just like, that is unbelievable. That, just, that could not have happened, and it did. And so when I would send out the script to the agents to try and uh, attract um, a director or a cast, the very first line in my email was, um, please find attached the uh, the script for the place I belong, the Molly Norman story, a- an unbelievably true story, including the first scene in the script, which happened exactly as written. And every agent I sent it to, the ones that called me back would say, You know, as soon as we read that, we had to read at least the first scene, right? Because you're – how do you not read that line and go, I got to read what that first scene is if it's so unbelievable. And when you read the first scene, not because I'm a great storyteller or part of a great writing team, but because that story that actually happened sets up the entire movie. And when you read that first scene, you're like – The first thing you think is, oh, my God, who is this guy? (laughs) And I want to know more. And then it gets people reading the script.
0: Tell us a little bit about the team. Uh, It's a David Carver project. Uh, You're the uh, inspiration for it. Um, But you've uh, managed to attract some other significant people. Uh, Matthew Stillman, uh, Kate Driver, and – of Schreiber, who, uh, when we first corresponded, I said, how can I not get David Carver in it? has got of Schreiber uh, in it. And my favorite show is Ray Donovan. Oh. Uh, for all, uh, all our listeners, if you haven't watched Ray Donovan. Start at the beginning. Start at the beginning. And, 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 and uh, what do they do that? They watch 10 of them a day. <laughs> and it's coming back. It's coming back soon. And, you know, it's, it's my favorite TV show. Uh, and I said, it's got Liev Schreiber, not, not necessarily acting in it. But he's part of the project. How did this team get put together? I sent the
2: script to Kate. Um, um, she's part of a talent management company, and um, I sent it to her, and she read, read uh, one of the earlier versions, and she loved it. She thought it was a great story, and she had a client who she was managing who she wanted to direct it. Um, unfortunately for us, great for the client. Uh, he was offered a big budget studio film, so he went in that direction. But Kate loved the script, and she said, "Well, what can I do to help out?" And I said, "Well, what can you do to help out?" <laughs> and uh, she said, "Well, look, let me get this to Liev Schreiber. Um, he's a huge golf fan. Um, he's part owner of a studio, and um, if he if he likes it, you know, you know we'll partner with you, and and uh, and we'll st- start opening doors that you're still trying to knock down." And um, they all, Liev, Kate, um, and Matthew, and um, Hardy Justice is the other uh, uh, guy I'm involved with, with their companies. Um, they love the story. They have a great sense of storytelling. Um, they've been helping me and the writers you know, tweak some things and giving us some great ideas. And you get focused on a on a train of thought, and sometimes fresh eyes give you a better perspective. So um they loved it. I flew to New York, um, had lunch with them and and we we did a deal and um and we're we're just about ready. We've we've kinda of finalized the script now as far as I think we, we wanna take it. And uh, we're ready to hit. So the, is there a the part interview. for Wally
1: in this? <laughs> uh, uh,
2: well, you know, we're, we're, there's a bad guy. We, can you be the bad uh, guy? I can be
0: the bad guy, or I can be that sports reporter in the sixties that uh, with a smoke in his, and he's got a fedora on. I look great in a fedora, <laughs> by the way, I, I'll be, I'll be a, a, a hack from the 1960s. Or if you need a, if you need a senior golfer. Uh, we, we need uh, those. We, we can, uh, I, I got a pretty good golf swing, David. That's so uh, we, we'll, we'll stay in touch oh. on, on that issue. Have <laughs> your people call my people. <laughs> anyway, David, we've got three minutes left, and uh, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't go to this story because I know you got a Don Cherry story. So if you can squeeze that one in in two uh, minutes, or you want to save it for the next I, time,
2: I, I'll try. It's it, it's um, so going back again. My father keeps coming up in this interview about Mo Norman, but um, uh, just after we we came back from my f- uh, father's funeral, um, there was a message on the machine. Literally, as we walked in the door, and it, and I played it, and. The voice was Don Cherry calling, and he's, the voicemail was um, or the message was, "Hey, I'm looking for my pal david and and Jill just wanted to let you know that I heard that Orrin passed away and um, have fond memories of of your dad when we were roommates and played on the on the Barry Flyers championship team. Your dad was a classy man, etc, et etc cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So my family were always wondering, well, you know, why is Don cherry saying I'm looking for my buddy David?" And so the question was, how do you know Don Cherry? And I don't know Don Cherry, but um, a friend of mine owned the Don Cherry's restaurant in Newfoundland. When my dad passed away, he phoned Don and must have mentioned my name's a Don. So as far as my family knows, um, Don Cherry and I are buddies. So um, I guess up until this moment, they didn't know that he's not my buddy. Well, he's my, he is, but you know what I mean. So... Um, I've always been trying to get a hold of Don to um, to thank him for that call since 2001. <laughs> so I finally got a hold of him uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he called me back, and, and I said, Don, I don't know if this is okay, but I've been telling everybody that you know, the story about how you phoned and left a message that you were looking for your buddy David and Jill to send your con- condolences. And I said, I've never told anybody that we're not friends. And he's like, well, rightly so, David. <laughs> he said, good for you. <laughs> I thought the initial phone call, the phone, you know, I don't think Dad and Don necessarily ran into each other too much, you know, maybe the occasional time at the airport. But, you know, they played in 1955. My dad passed away in 2001, and Don took time out of his day to call to send his condolences. Um, I think that's a commentary on Don. Certainly is. And probably a commentary on my father. That um, Certainly is. And and I think Don, is a, he's a man with a big heart. And right after we get Mo Norman on the stamp, we're going to get Don Cherry on
0: the stamp. Fantastic. Uh, I told you, David, we'd run out of time before we got a chance to talk about uh, a lot of different things. But I'll just leave it off at this. It's going to be a fascinating movie. I've been excited about it uh, since I heard about it. Uh, Mo Norman certainly left uh, indelible memories in in my in my mind. Um, we wish you all the success. Thank you. We want you back Thank as you. this project goes along, and it is an incredible story. It's the place I belong. The Mo Norman story. David Carver. Uh, we'll certainly keep an eye out for it. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Naz, last word. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving to all. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll be back again next Sunday morning. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.